Hey, hi, good afternoon, uh, this is Eli, this is a podcast about craft and related art problems. Um, I am in my car with my dog, we're traveling from Oakland to San Francisco, it's about 5.30 in the afternoon did the 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock shift in Oakland at a glass shop helping with a lighting project making large lighting sconces Um, and then tonight from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock I'm teaching a class in San Francisco about just about how to blow glass Um, and all the different techniques involved um, in glass volume. I think we're, we're focusing on the overlay today and essentially working as a team, working with a partner in the glass shop, accepting bits, handles, blobs, the way that you kind of work together with a partner um, by applying applying hot glass onto other hot glass. That's our focus today. Uh, doing on weeknights, I'm often working six to ten in San Francisco on the days in Oakland. Um, last night though, I was at my studio. I spent the last two nights in my studio in San Francisco. So work in Oakland and drive over to San Francisco. Um, and you know, that's been nice to go to the studio. I think setting up a studio, there's something special about setting up, um, a studio space. It's always, um, you know, I feel like the fun part is like taking the boxes out and just like setting up. It's a little bit of like setting up an atmosphere, setting up the feng shui of a of a space, getting it nice and weird, like getting the um, objects out and together, remarrying objects. Um, that haven't seen each other in a while or finding new um, strange combos of objects. Um, So that's exciting. That's um, nice to be able to put some things together and um, see some things. I haven't been thinking about art, my own art, for a while. Uh, I'm thinking about what is possible, so trying to think about possibilities again. Thinking about my own ambitions as an artist. I'm thinking about these um, hilarious lectures I used to give in my 30s like getting invited as a visiting artist to university, like speaking in front of a crowd, like somebody wants me to talk as an artist about um, art. And I kind of have this like strange path I weave through my work that kind of like 
you know, in some ways it's like telling a kind of like maybe inspiring story of like here's how to like how you could like make an art, how you could exist as an artist, um, how you might be able to um, find a path for yourself. I think I'm often thinking like of that one weird kid that's in the audience that's going to hear it and it's going to feel inspired. and I've been thinking about that more and you know kind of thinking how I don't believe that stuff anymore (laughs) like some of these like tales I used to tell of how it's possible here's a path you can weave I just it just all seems like so impossible right now Um, the market of art seems like so dysfunctional and so um, exploitive, you know, of new artists and not supportive of older artists. And I think some of this has been this like growth of internet and images and how accessible everything seems right now and anything is possible. Um, you know, the role of curator is kind of nullified, um, and galleries kind of just exist in this space of, you know, finding a new thing to sell and selling it, and everything seems so fad-related, and it seems kind of impossible to have an art career now. Maybe it's possible to make a little money, but it seems impossible to, like, um, plot a path for an art career. Uh, Was it before? I don't know. Maybe I was just disillusioned as a youngster and thinking that it was possible. Um, You know, of course, I still think potentially my own path is possible, but I feel like it's such a dangerous like tightrope act to get to the to the end goal or even even to the to the path um you know the end goal being just like a steady path um and i think that's i think it's totally impossible which I think brings me back to this thought of institutions and that, like, this is where they function, is that, like, they need to hold on to the people that, like, it's not possible to have an art career, but it's possible to, like, somehow get absorbed into, like, the meat of the arts and, like, work as a worker in the periphery of a large dysfunctional institution that... um exploits young talent and exposure and people that want to work for free or people that think they might actually have a chance um, and so that's where so we're all going to find ourselves in the Walmart of the arts um, so I'm excited I'm excited about that I'm excited about my own studio um, and what I'm doing in my studio um you know, as usual, one of the many things I'm doing is gluing things, um, and 
so that is what I'm actually really here to talk to you about is adhesives uh, I just use great glue on my windshield um, a ultraviolet exposure glue UV glue um, and I actually use there's like a really thin variety there's a couple different there's a number of different UV glues but there's one that's very thin that can kind of penetrate into the cracks in glass um, it works better if you have a vacuum pump if you actually like suck the air out or create a pressure and pressurize it and shove it into the cracks but it will seep into the cracks you can also heat the glass and get it to expand and move a little bit that's always a little tricky um but the thin stuff um will kind of slightly absorb into the cracks it did an okay job it didn't like get deep in there but you know what it did fucking get in there um and what i did is you like this it's really hilarious i used the uv on my windshield but i made sure it was like not gonna rain um because i didn't have any acetone with me um, so I put it on there so it could penetrate while I drove and then also just being in the sun um, the UV exposure tends to cure the glue and then I could just scrape off the stuff on the outside and we'll use elastitone to clean it up um, so there's a number of different kind of adhesives out there uv glue being one of them one of the more specialized weird glues um the general like the two kind of categories the main categories are the two-part glues which are generally in the polyurethane category but silicone also has a great there's some great two-part silicone glues now um and um, the evaporative glues that are either a solvent based or a water based uh, adhesive and um, so we'll see if I can kind of go through these we'll get back to UV because that's another category um, that is similar probably well I mean it's it's the the two part is that the Sun is or a UV an ultraviolet ray a 365 nanometer ultraviolet ray is the second part that makes it kick um, and so we'll get into that because it's a it's a little weirder glue but let's start let's go back um, and let's go to my favorite glue, uh, PVA, polyvinyl acetate. Um, and this glue is, um, a great one to use for book binding and paper. 
be very archival. Um, you can get a neutral acid PVA, and generally when it cures, it cures. It's a you know, it's water-based, but once the water once the water evaporates out, I guess once the water evaporates, it can be reconstituted, um, and so it is a fully water-based. Because there's some that are like water-based, but once the water gets out of it, they actually kick in a different way, and uh, that's some other magical chemical stuff. Um, but the PVA glue is going to be like wood glues are generally PVA based um, and you know there's a tight bond 3 that purports to be waterproof once it dries so I think there's some like there's a bit more magical chemical things happening in the PVAs these days that have been formulated in a way that um they can actually cure in a way that they can't really be reconstituted uh, and they can generally become waterproof. Um, so something in it is polymerizing in, in a way that's a little different than the, the PVA of my youth. Uh, Elmer's glue of my youth. Um, so Elmer's glue, wood glue, uh, those are PVAs. And, um, you know, related to PVC pipe, also related to bubble gum. Um, there's some fun um, transformations you can make chemically uh, as a chemist that you can weave between bubble gum and PVC and PVA. Uh, I'm not sure which P PV bubble gum is, but play a nasty one. Okay. So that oil is water-based, and um, PVA general has a little bit of flexibility to it, which is why it's good for for wood, because wood has a little bit of flexibility to it. Um, there's going to be a little expansion and contraction in moisture and um, the different moisture contents. Um, and around, I guess around heat, but really around humidity, which would be a little heat related. So um, you're going to have to account for expansion and contraction. So you want a little flexibility. Um, it is water-based, so you're generally going to get a little bit better penetration into those grains and into the kind of swelling grains. Um, this is, you know, you're pretty much not going to want to use it on a metal because that water is going to oxidize and um, I would imagine that flexibility you're going to get, it's not going to be as thin as some of the metal glues because if you, if you want a good mechanical adhesion on metal, you're going to want something even a little thinner. So I guess it's actually not that penetrative. Um, it's going to penetrate into the wood grains, but it's not that thin. It's pretty thick. Um, and it's not going to run. It's not going to penetrate. So it's going to penetrate into wood, but not going to give you a great mechanical adhesion on metal. Uh, you'll get a little bit, but it's not really going to stick. And there's going to be 
definitely going to be some shrinkage, which is not going to be good for metal. Because metal, you don't want it to shrink. Um, you're going to want it to um, not shrink. Because metal is not really going to shrink. There's going to be a little expansion and contraction, but not the same um, as wood. So, um, for very flexible things like wood and paper, PVA is going to be great. Okay? So, that's a good uh, water based adhesive. Um, now, let's think of other evaporative glues like you know fucking rubber cement is a real like i feel like rubber cement is kind of slept on um it's a it is um evaporative in that it's like an acetone solvent based um where you can probably thin it with acetone or xylene or gasoline um and it's basically just a rubber. What kind of rubber is it? Is it a latex rubber? Um, that would then um, not be that penetrative, but it's going to be sticky. It's not going to shrink a lot, but still going to be in that neighborhood of... Um, woods and papers and things um, not generally archival but um, once it cures it actually can be removed because it's not penetrative really at all it actually can be removed fairly easily uh, some papers is going to stain but it really can stick um, like you can stick it to some metals and things and it's not going to oxidize the metals because generally it might stain it but because of the solvent and the oil base it's really not going to oxidize things so it's a great thing to kind of stick some things on but not permanently um, and not archival because it's just some, it's some crazy ass solvents and rubbers and shit you know I mean, there might be some archival low acid, but I would generally think you wouldn't want to be fucking around with some rubber cement. What even is rubber cement, you know? Okay. So there's a cool one. Now, since we're in the archival territory, um, wheat paste uh, show you, like a wheat paste... Um, there's going to be, like, you can use just flour. You can just use white flour to make wheat paste. But from what I understand, it's not 100% archival. And there's, there's, you know, a more refined kind you can get. Like a, sh a shoyu, I believe, is the name for it. I should check on that. Um, but that you would have an archival wheat paste. Um, and that's going to be used. Use distilled water. Use some magic water with it. Distill your water and mix it with your flour or wheat paste. And that, uh, if you're going to want to heat, it's going to be easier if you heat your water and then add the flour to it and stir slowly with it heated. 
uh, it can it's hard to get it to not clump um, so stirring as you add it um, and then is that right or is it you stir it in when it's cold and then fucking heat it up and stir it I think that's the way to do it is you add the flour to it when it's cold and you mix it so it doesn't clump and like get your ratio right and then you heat it up and the heat is where it's going to stiffen up you can add it to the hot water if you know what you're doing and you're mixing right and you know the right ratio but I think you can get it too thick if you're adding to hot water so I think if you go into cold water and you get it right and you like make a certain ratio then you heat it then it'll work right like two cups of flour one cup of water or maybe it's one cup of flour two cups of water something like that um, sorry I don't know that exact ratio but uh, even if I did, it would be wrong. You know this. Um, so that glue is going to be really, really mellow. Very low acid. Really nice to add um, to, like, your fancy paper. Like, if you're making rice paper hinges that you want to hold your photograph or your fancy print with that is a great glue to use um, very low impact on the paper very sticky gonna work well it's not gonna soak through it's not gonna stain it it's gonna be really low acid it's very long-lasting archival it's all the things you ever wanted in your little museum um, so there's a great archival wheat paste glue. Also, wheat paste is great because you can, like, if you just make it with flour, you can slather it on stuff, and you can stick your posters up on the wall or on other things. You can stick them on top of paper. You can stick kind of on anything. And it really isn't... It's like it'll wash off in the rain eventually. Um, and so it's less aggressive. It's very affordable. It's not really nasty. You can get it on your hands. It's not. Uh, it's all the things you've ever wanted for aggressive graffiti style um, posterizing. Um, okay, so evaporative glues there's also going to be your silicone based there's like silicones and latex your acrylic latex like caulking out of the caulk gun um, and there's going to be less gnarly ones that aren't going to be as stinky um, and are going to be um, a little slower drying. You know, they're probably like some sort of mineral spirits, so it's a lower evaporative, low shrinkage. You don't want high shrinkage on those things. Um, and then like a more aggressive one like an E6000 is generally not coming in the caulking tube generally coming in a little squeezy tube 
and that stuff is going to be more like a higher solvent um, higher VOC solvent like acetone uh, it's going to be a little stankier and gnarlier but it's going to um, evaporate quicker and it's going to cure a little better and might just be a little stickier um, and tend to like the stuff that doesn't cure as well like the lower VOC stuff it tends to not cure as well unless it's really exposed to air like if you get some like acrylic latex caulking and like make it too thick like it's not gonna fucking cure inside the thick goober that you just put on your thing but if you use like E6000 an acetone based silicone that's pretty clear um, it's gonna be as more expensive and um, it's going to tend to want to cure, like, no matter what. Like, if you if you leave it in the tube, you open, once you open the tube, like, you're beginning that exposure, and eventually the whole tube will just harden. Uh, so that stuff's nicer if you're making something like you got some glass parts you want to stick together, and there's some exposure, but there's kind of a thick part that's not, like, directly air-exposed. Um, so those are... A little better to use. Um, silicone in general, the solvents using the silicone are better. Like they're going to kick faster than the acrylic latex caulking. Um, and then into those higher VOC ones are going to be better um, for kicking. Like sandwiching. Like if you want to sandwich some glass together. Um, getting something that has a higher VOC. Oh, oh excuse me. Um, so, you know, here's another outlier is the Gorilla Glue. That Gorilla, that brand Gorilla Glue is like, that stuff actually kicks with water, but just generally kicks with moisture in the air, right? Um, and that one, um, it's not really, it's not evaporative. It's really, it's like a two-part. Um, and it, uh, but it also like foams up. It's very expanding. Um, really penetrative and it fucking cures it's like it's hard to fuck with that stuff you really the only thing that can clean it is acetone and even that it's like nothing I've never used like gasoline on it I bet gasoline probably works great to cure that stuff gasoline is like a really aggressive solvent um, and while I was a youngster I feel like it was more used like the old timers that I learned from it was always like gasoline was a solvent to use um, washing my hands in gasoline uh, was definitely something I was shown how to do as a kid <laughs> I think that might not be a good idea uh, but it depends on what you got in your hands you know you got some crazy ass tar shit on your hands you actually might want to put some gasoline on your hands 
and then maybe you want to wash your hands with acetone to clean the gasoline, and then you want to get to some soap and water. Uh, you know, maybe it's too late by that point. Soap and water ain't going to help you then. Um, okay, so... Um, But there's some other evaporative adhesives that I'm not um, remembering. But maybe what we could do is move into polyurethanes because who doesn't love polyurethanes? Um, sometimes called two-part epoxies, epoxy polyurethane. Um, you know, paint like a, a car paint is also going to be often. The old-fashioned kind is a polyurethane. There's new fangled kinds that are water-based, but generally most of the old-school auto paints are two-part two polyurethane. Uh, all the good paint is going to be two-part polyurethane. And, what, and often those will, like, it's harder to get even acetone to act on those. They It will, and gasoline and acetone can, but part of what auto paint is formulated is like something that doesn't react immediately um, with gasoline because you got gasoline in the car and you spill gasoline out of your gas tank um, it's going to mess up your paint job um, so so two part polyurethanes um one is generally going to be your like the urethane, the plastic part, and the other is the kicker that hardens it, um, and that generally is going to be MEKP, methyl ethyl ketone, and that stuff, um, the MEKP, is the important chemical stuff, and in a lot of like normal kind of polyurethane glues, it's going to be like a 10 to 1, like a 10 of your, um, of the, of the glue, of the filler stuff, and then, um, one of the hardener. Sometimes even less so. Sometimes even, um, 100 to 1, but, um, because the MEK, MEKP is generally a thin, um, it's like a, I mean, it's essentially an alcohol methyl ethyl ketone. It's a, it's a ketone, and that stuff um, is generally thinner, and then the urethane is generally thicker. And so what's been kind of proven in the industry is that if you have this thin stuff, you got to mix them with the thick stuff. It's hard to get the thin stuff to mix in correctly. If you don't mix it right away, it can kind of kick right away in the part that you just mixed in. Um, you know, some industries would even just have like the MEKP as like a single, like as a, as a straight chemical. Sometimes you're even spraying it on to get it to kick on the surfaces. Um, there's some crazy old school ways of doing it. But what's generally been found in the adhesives like that are consumer level is that if you if you're doing a 10 to 1 or a higher ratio it's hard sometimes to get it right um, 
and that you want the the hardener to be a little thicker so that it mixes better because you got that thin stuff it can kind of just like push out to the sides it's hard to get it to mix in and so the industry has found that it's better even to have more filler in the hardener an inert filler that then can harden with once the kick happens on the on the other side is because if you do a 10 to 1 you don't get all that one part mixed in then it's going to look like the glue is failing you know um, and it's hard to get those polyurethane if you're mixed up polyurethane especially those higher ratio ones they're harder to get to mix right well if you have a one to one ratio um, it's kind of it's easier to get those to mix in evenly and there's techniques of when you're mixing a polyurethane is that you generally want to you mix in one jar and then you transfer to another jar to finish the mix like you put your your 10 part into a jar then you add your one part of hardener you mix that up then you pour that out and you can scrape the sides of that into your second one and then you mix that and then you you pour that out and use that as your glue but don't scrape the sides like don't get all the last little bit and that's part of like those polyurethanes is that like you can not um, you can not kick part of it which is why using the MEK, MEKP as a separate um, chemical is another way um, to deal with that which is really a toxic thing and really a gnarly thing and like spraying that shit on or adding it on extra is like that's what you want to be like suited up with the rubber gloves and your um extra double face mask um, I haven't even talked about safety I'm sorry um, so with the polyurethanes you want to not get it in your lungs so you want to be wearing a respirator you want to not get it on your skin so you want to be wearing rubber gloves and all sorts of suits um, the urethane is going to be gnarly and the MEKP is going to be gnarly so neither of them you don't want exposure to either of those now here's the one that people forget about is that salivary glands in your eyeballs can also absorb this shit so to be super safe wearing a full face respirator is really helpful um, because you can't get it up in your eyeballs and I know people that have spent a lot of time with this stuff like you can get away with it like you can get it on your hands and you can like fuck around with it and you can get a little bit but I also know people that have worked in the industry for a long time and they end up developing like developing like severe allergic reactions to it eventually eventually essentially like getting rashes and shit so um, like some of it can be accumulative some of it can just be you don't want to fuck with that stuff um, so, eight mil rubber gloves. Get a box of eight mils and just swap them out. Just like your mixie, just take off your gloves and throw them away and grab a new pair of gloves. Um, 
and it's wasteful, but it's kind of the way that you got to deal with polyurethane. Also, if you wanted to get it to mix right and not make a mess and not get it sticky and not get some of your urethane to not harden, um, you're going to have to be swapping out some gloves. Swapping out gloves, full face respirator, not the half face of your nose, but full face all around your face, and you're going to have to make sure that your beard face is shaved because you need to be able to get a tight seal against your flesh. Um, so you get your eyes protected and you get your face inside the mask and you breathe in. Or you have a forced air respirator that's a hooded respirator and you have a separate um, filter unit filtering out the air. Um, those are also great options. Um, so avoiding contact with all this stuff. And then if you kind of get into that territory and you're in a safe ventilated area, you know, you could start to fuck around with some of that hardener, um, the MEK, and um, do some of these old school techniques, which you did not hear from me. You don't want to try that stuff, actually. Never mind. Don't do that. It's crazy. Uh, get some PVA. Make a print art, make a collage. That's what you need to do. Um, so you can get like a polyurethane, like sometimes like some like crystal clear countertop um, polyurethane. Um, those will often be a one-to-one. -one. And they'll... So those are going to mix. There's going to be low shrinkage they're going to mix one to one. They're going to be easier to mix them. Um, they're going to take a little longer to cure. So you got a longer pot life. The amount of time that you have to work them in the in your mixing container. So they're not going to be kicking in your mixing container. Um, the longer pot life. Um, it's easier to get the bubbles out of those things, if you, especially if you don't have a vacuum uh, bucket where you can put it under vacuum and remove um, the bubbles out of it. You can, it'll often just, the bubbles will settle out and um, if the bubbles don't settle out, you could use like a hair dryer, even like a lightly use a torch on the surface to remove the bubbles out of the uh, polyurethane. It's like the kind of thing if you got a bar and you want to put some four leaf clovers and some coins in your bar, this is the kind of stuff you're going to want to use this countertop um, polyurethane. Great stuff. Um, so that's an option. This is a great option. Um, and it's easy to use. It's um, not going to be thicker. It's not going to be as penetrative. It's like really not even like it's less of a glue and more of a surface coating. But that's where like you know some of this is like you get into the particulars of like, is it a glue or is it a paint? I mean, it's all just, it's a, it's a chemical. Um, and you're having a, you're creating a chemical reaction by adding the hardener um, to your poly. Okay. Um, now I'm going to tell you the truth right now. It's the honest truth. Getting to my work job, um, I have to go in there and go do a work. 
Um, but I'll be back in a little bit, okay? Um, thanks for listening. I hope you have a good nap. And I love you lots, okay? Talk to you soon. Okay, here I am. We're back. Um, hope you had a good nap. Um, I did some working. I actually worked a bunch of different jobs. It's like three days later now. And I taught some classes in glass blowing, and I worked on this furnace that I've been working on for a long time. Uh, got the face bricked up. Getting really close with this dang furnace. Um, feeling pretty good. And it's a lot of project. Um, you know, the thing is, is, like, if I hit pause and I come back to recording, um, man, I, I should have just, like, got right back to it, but I was feeling a little pooped that night. And instead, what I've been doing is just thinking about glues, adhesives, this whole time. It's been an intense three days of thinking about adhesives. Um, so, you know glad you're here with me go through this stuff listen up um, about these glues so um, we're kind of getting to the end of some of the polyurethane stuff um, the basic polyurethane stuff um, and then I forgot about a glue an evaporative glue um, super glue cyanoacrylate um, and that stuff, wow, what a special glue. Um, you know, what is it that evaporates out of that? Just, you know, probably fucking cyanide, some crazy-ass chemical. That shit's fucking gnarly. Um, uh, but that one is a quick cure, very quick, quick evaporation, quick cure, plasticky glue. Um. And that stuff, wow. Um, you know what I've seen that be applied most is with movie, movie set, movie, like, uh, special effects people. They fucking love superglue. Because the reality is superglue can fucking hold for a minute and it goes fast and it can hold it. And it's not archival. And it's really brittle and... Um, it's not a great glue but it can be great in the short run it can make things happen um, if you're doing things quickly if you're doing set type things um, it's very reactive to um, polystyrene like styrofoam kind of shit it will fucking melt styrofoam um, but you know it's really it's great on wood like, it definitely goes brittle and doesn't last, but it does hold wood for a second. It isn't flexible. It isn't good for long term, but if you need to stick two pieces of wood together, wow. You need to stick some plastic to wood, wow. Um, it's really great. does not have, because of its brittleness, uh, it doesn't have a great mechanical adhesion. It doesn't kind of create that suction that a good flexible polyurethane can um, so then there's a special category of polyurethanes, um, glass glues, um, adhesives used in glass, 
are often going to be from what I understand is, is they're like really formulated in this way that because glass is so difficult to glue um, there have been a few glues that have been made that are um, can really um, handle the needs of the glass gluing world um, there's one brand called Hextal H-X-T-A-L and Hextal is like it's like a 24 to 48 hour pot life takes about 7 days to cure um, you can let it harden a little bit like you can get it in that 24 to 48 hours you can um, get it to stiffen up a little bit you can go from a, a wetter substance to raise the viscosity up and still not uh, mess with its cure like it'll still be a functional you'll still get a good kick um so you can use it to fill things. It's very clear. It doesn't react to UV, or at least over you know the 10 to 15 years range. Um, it does not shrink. And this is where the glass glues have been really formulated, because there is no shrinkage or flexibility in glass. Glass is pretty much just going to stay where it is. So the glue needs to be slightly flexible. If the glue is 100% rigid, it can't, like, it needs to be able to flex because the glass is not going to flex. Um, good penetration. Hextal can really, like, it's probably, you know, it's like a thin honey sort of viscosity. Um, but it flows because it stays wet for 48, you know, 72 hours while it kind of sets up. It, it, it can move. It can really penetrate and get into the cracks and um, do do the necessary things for glass which is to really get into the surface and if the surface is clean this is where you need to clean the heck out of your surface um, using certain kinds of alcohol they actually like they actually sell a brand um, but a actually cleaning it with an acetone or an alcohol um, but then using the hex doll so it's gonna it's like a suction cup um you know a really fancy suction cup um that that's the mechanical adhesion that you're achieving by being wet enough that it can like fully penetrate all surface and takes a while to cure so really can settle down on there um where Um, settles down on air it really penetrates and um, where glues that set up faster don't have the time to really like get on there so um, using that glue that long that many day cure type of polyurethane um, still, I've found it, it's 
you can go glossy to glossy, but I've found through practice that it's always better to have a little tooth on your um, on your glue joint, like grinding it away, and then you put the hex on there, it will make it glossy again. It will look shiny and it will penetrate into your crowd like if you scuff it just even with a dremel just meh, 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 just make it like a shitty scuff the glue will penetrate and disappear those little scuffs um so that it turns back into glossy fancy um it's like a finishing technique i've seen used on glass also where you could like have a scuff and you could use this glue to clean up those scuffs um, cold working like if you need to make your cold work look fancy but you don't want to have to cold work that shit you can just fucking spread glue on it um, there's another one Loctite makes a two part that's closer I guess Hexol is a three to one and I think that Loctite is probably around there three to one two to one it's a comes in two different tubes in a special dispenser and the Loctite C30CL. Uh, that stuff is a little thicker and it's like a half hour work time, 24 hour cure. That stuff's also, I've seen that stuff um, do some really impressive things. Um, people use it to fill things and stick, you know, glossy to glossy is working. Uh, you know, ultimately, glass is always, like, it's so temperamental to glue. It's so difficult to get it to glue. Um, I never really trust a glossy to glossy, even if it's fully clean and I'm doing everything the adhesive company says. I never totally believe that it's going to hold. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do an overhead joint that's just glue, glossy to glossy. You might be able to convince me if there's a mechanical adhesion in there, if that was either there was a scuffed, scuffy to scuffy, or like some sort of like peg insert, an any outy sort of thing that really was like, even if the actual glue joint failed, there would still be some sort of mechanical grab action. Um, but. Uh, I mean, part of this is like learning all these tricks of adhesives and what you can do in fancy ways with adhesives has also taught me like the joy of like not trying to hide those things and that like all those kind of tricks that you can make little joints disappear and you can make it seem like something magic. Um, there's like a joy in not hiding that stuff. There's a joy in it just being um, what it is in a kind of like, you know, a junky, bolted together sort of way. Um, I think there's something that's really wonderful about that. But that's really just my own aesthetic. And that's another, that has nothing to do with adhesive. You didn't come here for that shit. Um, so, what did you come here for? You came here for the adhesives. Uh, good job, too. Good job on coming here for the adhesives. Thank you um, for coming here for adhesives.
Um, now, another one, another glass, an important glass glue is the UV reactive glues. The glues that kick when exposed to ultraviolet rays. Um, a couple of different brands of those. Loctite makes like the most important one. I think there's like a 349 and a 1419 or something. There's like a, a higher viscous and a lower viscosity one. Uh, you can use the, this is the one what got me on this kick was using it on my windshield recently. I got the lower viscosity one, very thin, and I put it on my windshield on all the fucking cracks I got on my windshield. Um, to let it penetrate into those cracks and hopefully, like, get a little bit more life out of my windshield. Um, and so, that one, there's a th the thin one, um, is going to penetrate into the cracks. The thick one is going to sit a little bit proud on there. It's going to be a little, you know, it's kind of that same, like, thin honey, as we were talking about with the Hextall, but the thing about that UV glue is it, is it kicks fast. You hit it with the light. You can either, the way that I was shown was to take it out in the sun and put it in the sun, which honestly, that doesn't fucking work that well. Like, it'll harden, but man, it's not a great way to set your glue. Um, the way to do it is to get a 346 nanometer ultraviolet light on there, and you could get those, like, they make fancy ones, but you can just get a flashlight version that works great um, because generally what you're doing with the glass is like you're getting into a tiny little spot and you're pointing the flashlight at it. Uh, and so you can kind of like get the flashlight into that little little crevice there. Um, so... That glue. What the heck is going on with that reaction? Um, it's a good question. There's heat involved. It's like a chemical reaction that's kicking something that's hardening. I don't really understand. I haven't really done some investigations on exactly what chemically is happening there. Um, but you are getting a chemical reaction. It's kicking. You get heat. I've seen it smoke when you hit it with the light um, up close, you get that light on there, that fucking glue will smoke and then kick. Um, definitely, it's some pretty toxic, gnarly stuff. That's The smell of that stuff is really gnarly. Um, so lots of ventilation and face masks for that one. Um, longevity, archival, I mean, it's purported to be archival and long-lasting, but it kicks on UV, which means to me... It, it, like at some point it's always going to be degrading with ultraviolet light it's it's you know maybe supposedly there's something that that happens the ultraviolet light kicks something that makes it react and harden and then that substance becomes inert like whatever it was that was reacting becomes inert and um it's done and so then it's a hardened you know, urethane substance. Is that true? You know, at some point, I just don't believe, I don't believe anything anymore. Um, but a lot of people use it, and it's a really great glue, and it can do lots of great things. And um, 
you know, also maybe if you got it like jammed up in a joint, like you got a lot in there and it's not really exposed to light, it's going to be great. Um, brown glass is like one, like brown glass does not let UV, that's why beer bottles use brown glass. Brown glass doesn't let the UV rays through. Um, and so, trying to glue brown glass. If you've got glass that like doesn't let the UV rays through, and you can get the the UV rays into that into a certain area, um, but then have it covered. That's a great way to use it. Another way I've seen that UV glue used is with in combo with Hextall, where you use the UV glue to hold. The hexal. Say you're putting two pieces together, like a quarter size to a quarter size. Dot a hexal in the middle, and then UV around the edge on the outside, and then you UV blast it to hold it, and then the UV becomes what holds the hexal while the hexal cures, and then you have a real potential hexal joint. Um, so there's a there's a trick. There's a trick. Um, the other one that I enjoy using. Uh, it glue and glue is using a hot glue with popsicle sticks to hold your glass together while you use another glue to hold it. And that's what I've seen used with Hexol or with the Loctite 30CL because it's like a 24-hour time. So you have this like little bit of work time, got your, you need it to cure for a day, use some popsicle sticks to hold that shit together. Um, works great. Okay, so I think uh, we've covered many of the adhesives that we needed to cover. Um, the evaporative and the chemical kick um, adhesives. And then the kind of specialty glass ones. I'm sure there's other, like, more important specialty ones that I don't know enough about. Um, but maybe this is helpful. Maybe this just... Uh, kept you on the snooze um, you know more important rambling about art institutions man it's like every time I talk about this stuff I get like I then I spend days thinking about it and being like fuck it wrong it's all fucking wrong institutions are great everything's great and then I hear some like bullshit happen with an institution and I'm like fucking see that's why institutions are no good but what else is there like if there wasn't art museums what would there be you know there's got to be like I mean it's like you know some sort of crazy like library system it's just the dysfunction and the like the sucking of all the like resources that happens in these art schools, art institutions, and art museums, that it's like, they create this place where it's like, oh, look, this is where the art happens, and like, you can support this, but then, like, it becomes this club where, one, there's a bunch of people that don't make art that are being employed, they're being paid for it, to be stewards of the art, but they're, like, they're pitching art that's not really that artsy or it's old shit they're just like museums that are like holding on to old stuff that's like super watered down doesn't have the punch of like fucking art in the art studio and has this kind of like you know ultimate like dried upness <laughs> of art that's been you know 
well washed. And then, you know, the meat of the art, it doesn't have the punch. But that's the stuff that you'll never get it in an institution. You'll never get government-ordained, you know, actual aggressive art. And that's the that's the really tricky part is that the only way to create art is to do it on an individual level from a, a you know a stance of not as much reactionary but like you know a somewhat aggressive stance and a a you know the artist being the one person that can like hold this viewpoint and that it can't really be put into a group and it can't really be put in through an institution it has to be from an individual speaking um and that you know that this is the this is the meat of it. We know this in like underground art and underground music. Like the stuff that hits is the stuff that's not supported by larger companies, by institutions, by for-profit or non-profit organizations. Um, that instead it's the the individuals, um, and I think that that's the you know. If there's anything that's this all this talking about, this stuff has got me thinking about and remembering is that it is that at that individual level that's so important and it's so hard and there's no recipe for it there's no formula there's no way and there's no way to really directly support it without these kind of like strange funding sources that just like here's money with no strings attached which like those ultimately also become you know, they will function for a while, but then they become dysfunctional in this way that they become um, nepotistic and, you know, doing it for finding favor in it and that they kind of like uh, the favoritism of uh, those situations where they kind of lean into a certain group or people or a certain person, a certain curator gets a hold of it and it starts to be all kind of like connected within that, that it's like, and this is what, this goes back to this kind of idea of like a massive communist affair where like all of the artists just get like free food and money and don't have any laws and get to live in the commune and maybe they have like some sort of bus that they can take out and go out into the real world occasionally and like have like real world visits but they can't, they have to go home to the commune at night. Maybe there's something like that. Um, <clears throat> because there is something magic and something that is very unusual about the artists that are, <clears throat> you know, that all they can do is create, that they are so troubled that all they can do is make. And I think that we can't lose sight of that, you know, as much as we want to, like, organize it and institutionalize it. It's not possible that that is part of this reality is that, like, the true art cannot be organized. True art cannot be institutionalized. It comes from the individual, which ultimately is totally at odds with that larger organization system. And that we have to somehow 
support it, you know, we have to support it as a group, but without supporting it in in a group fashion. You know, this is this kind of impossible thing, and I think this is why I'm, I'm having so much trouble thinking about this. Is all I've been thinking about lately is like this thought of like the individual versus the institution. You know, the arts with the capital A versus the, the artist with the lowercase a. That kind of like, how is this, how can these function together? How can these live in the same space? And is it possible for them to support each other or are they always at odds? And I think, you know, they're always at odds, but we need to like give them this space of like, um, Allowing them to be together, allowing them to function. I don't know. I think we just need to always be fighting for the arts and and for it in a supporting the individual artist level, not supporting the big museum level. That we have to remember that it's like the living arts that are the important stuff. And that's the thing that is like so important to support rather than um, the arts organization that is like the big, you know, they take out billboards and they're the big advertisers and they have a big real estate and they have a big property and they have a big museum and you can go see it and you can go see all these dead artists. And it does feel like important. It's these hollowed halls, but it becomes this kind of like, you know, old church of like, it's, you know, it's all been sanctioned by a certain kind of wealthy class and I think that we have to remember that like that's it's like a class thing that you know the real artists are always broke and they're always fighting against this class world and the you know the wealth is always about extraction and exploitation and that's where that wealth comes from and the artists never get enough of it and they only get a little taste of it and whatever they're getting is from that terrible money source. It is, you know, from the arms dealers and, you know, the pharma companies and it is like, it is always sour money, but if it's going to the artist, it's no longer sour when it gets to them. But we have to like, you know, Remember that there is this ultimate contradiction in it, and we have to allow the artist to steal that money from the terrible bad places and turn it into good money. You know, artists as money launderers, artists as like they are cleaning, you know, moral money launderers. Like they are the ones that take that terrible money and they turn it good, you know. Um, maybe there's that's where I'm going with this. So that's what I had to say about adhesives. Uh, if that was helpful for you, um, and th when you think about adhesives and how you might want to glue things together in your life. Um, all right. Well, from the Bay Bridge, um, a beautiful foggy day. I'm on my way into my studio. I'm going to go assemble some shelves. I'm going to I'm going to glue things, some some things together. I'm going to hang um, some chains and rings from nylon straps 
uh, and create some sort of complex ladder swaying kind of problematic um, support system to get myself into my loft space in my studio. And I'm going to think about um, continuing to be problematic and confusing in my studio practice um, so as not to get too lost in um, in making things look good or decipherable but keeping it confusing and difficult just like adhesives alright well love you lots thanks for listening this is the end of message bye for now